Ah, oh, this is a good one, man. The Pipeworks Brewing Company, Ninja versus Unicorn Double IPA. Mm, love double IPA. It sounds delicious. <laughs> it's it's going to be really delicious. What are you drinking over there, Eric? I have got a Brickstone Brewery APA today. Is that also from Chicago? It is from it is from Illinois. It is from Bourbonnais, Illinois. I don't, I've I've lived here almost a year, and I don't think I've uh, even heard of that place. I'd be lying if I told you I knew exactly where it was. <laughs> You're in the burbs. You're supposed to be able to name all of those places. Yeah, this is uh, this is such a good beer. I really enjoy it. It's got like that little bit of citrusy, but it's not at all ridiculously over citrus it's not like drinking orange juice or a hazy and since it's unfiltered it's super smooth compared to a lot of other ipas out there so really uh really loving this thing very nice yeah mine has much more of a citrus citrusy kind of a bite to it uh really light for a beer that's 6.25 yeah the apas usually do that they're always a tad bit lighter it seems just, I guess that's kind of how America does everything. But Jagged Mountain Brewery in Denver had an APA uh, called Sawatch, named after the mountain range, that was just, it was phenomenal. It was all right when I first had it, and then they got a new brewmaster, and she just absolutely crushed it. It was amazing. Made it hoppier, juicier, and it just phenomenal. So there are some APAs I like, but I generally stick to the IPAs and the doubles. When I'm not drinking Guinness, of course. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, well, you know. So uh, (laughs) anyway, welcome to Ops and Hops, the inaugural podcast uh, voyage. I'm Derek Morgan. We've got Eric Martin here with me today. We are both drinking our beers after a really rough day fighting in the ops world. So now we are venturing into the hops world as fast as we can. So I want to go ahead and apologize ahead of time for what comes out of that world. You know, as you know, Eric, today I was basically fighting Ansible AWX all day. Been messing in GitLab, trying to deploy some rancher resources. Getting K3S deployed, which is a much lighter Kubernetes deployment on the edge, which will help us to manage all of our machines and everything much easier. So now when we update our software, we hit a button, as you know, and basically it deploys to every node on the floor, which is 60 plus. So that's uh, very, very nice to have, and I've been kind of dealing with that today. What, uh, what were you playing with today on the floor? So I spent my time working out a workflow with a cabling machine that allows us to... Uh, automatically print labels through the ERP system once a production reel is complete. Now, all of this is coming from a wire manufacturer, by the way. So they uh, they begged us to be on-prem instead of allowing us to go and play in the cloud, which is why all of a sudden some of this stuff, which is typically just uh, one Terraform script away from being done, takes a lot more work. Where we've integrated Ansible, some Terraform, Proxmox, networking, you name it. And it's really turning into quite the monster. 
but it is enjoyable and i think we've done a pretty good job considering we've been pretty much hamstrung by budgetary constraints since we started a year ago and uh, i'd say well, let's see what are, uh, what's our only downtime pretty much whenever a contractor unplugs it <laughs> yeah so far <laughs> I mean, yeah, I made a few misclicks, but for the most part, I'd say uh, contractors unplugging our servers or uh, breakers being hit in the server rooms has been uh, causing the AC units to go out have been pretty much our primary concerns. So that's pretty great. Yeah, luckily we haven't had any major losses with any of that, even with the air conditioning units going out and the servers over temping. When we were initially declined our original plans, I kind of prepared for that a little bit and kubernetes has really helped kind of get things modular enough to where we can move them fast enough if something goes down we've made everything you know incredibly resilient to this all of our code everything's stored in gitlab and basically everything is practically ephemeral we've got some data that's of course backed up but for the most part if something goes down and we bring it back up it comes back up and it's ready to go we can move it to new servers, wherever we need to go. So that's that's awesome. Really helps out. Eric, what are you seeing in the manufacturing world and industrial world outside of our plan? You, are you seeing this stuff getting rolled out, or how slowly do you do you see it happening? Um. So there's been a a big push for this kind of stuff. Definitely. Um, a lot of the plants I've been in and places I've gone didn't have it two years ago when I was really traveling around a lot, but especially over the last couple of years, there's been big pushes for the, the data monitoring and uh, we're getting a lot of interest in automated scheduling and things that are trying to take the human error and human development time out of scheduling manufacturing plants. Right. Now, we don't want to turn this into an advertisement, obviously, for our company, which if you go after our uh, Twitter accounts and LinkedIn and things like that, you can see we do work for an IoT company. But quite frankly, uh, we don't really have much else to talk about today. I guess, you know, one of the big things is just we see this stuff starting to come into play and really the deployment is what's changing more than anything, you know, which is why we have decided to kind of go down this Kubernetes road. Obviously we are, you know, a lot of people are doing it, but we're still one of the first out there kind of really getting down this road considering we started a year ago and basically I based this whole thing off of a uh, Chick-fil-A blog love them or hate them, that's basically where I got the idea to start doing this. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing Red Hat had just rolled out OpenShift Edge type stuff. Kubernetes, uh, not Kubernetes, uh, Ranchers rolled out several new things, which is really, really great for us. We're just kind of following the rancher lifestyle and it's been great. So, you know, it's great to see all of this stuff rolling out. It seems like our jobs kind of get better easier every single day to be honest it's it's really great so what got you into all of this whenever you started i know you kind of been doing python on the edge for the most part do you find that that's fast enough versus c and rust right now for the uses that i've implemented python's been plenty fast enough i mean most of the reading and stuff is one second intervals and we're getting, I mean, we have millisecond response times for most of the decisions we need to make actually on the edge. So Python's been fast enough for most of that. So have you even thought about the idea of like having to use Cython or anything like that? Or are you just kind of, is the, the Python asyncio libraries and things working out just fine? 
So Python async's been working just fine for me. I've definitely toyed with the idea of trying to get some C Python in there for certain things, but uh, ultimately I've ended up going Python async EO. Okay, cool. So once you pass the Python layer, uh, pretty much everything else is just ladder logic, right? I mean, from what I've read, there's just no way Python can manage that speed. Trusting Python with something like actually switching the bits in a PLC is probably a little terrifying from what I've read. Yeah, at this point, I think embedded systems for machine control is starting to get bigger. I know uh, some of the larger companies I've worked for in the past have been working on developing some of that kind of stuff for some of their machinery. But any computerized embedded systems I've seen run on C, not Python. Yeah. Have you uh, have you seen any rust coming in? I know we've I know it's a it's huge. People are talking about it a lot, but have you heard it in your circles at all? Personally, I have not run into any rust anywhere. Yeah, but I I do know that rust, especially for embedded microcontrollers, mm-hmm. is a a big new language. So we've been working with the printers, things like that. I guess it's it's such a weird world that we are doing such. Well, I want to use the word edge. I know the edge, <laughs> the word edge kind of means two things now. We're talking about edge computing, but we're also kind of on the edge of, you know, development practices for this kind of stuff. The only really next thing that's been really been worked on is like serverless stuff. And that's kind of not quite there yet where we are. And then we're working all the way down to bare metal computers because we're still on prem. And then we're actually working with integrating with PLCs, which are incredibly rudimentary. And we're talking to label printers and crap like that. It's definitely a a different type of setup. And I think it's, you know, we're learning a lot, of course, on how to bring these things into the modern age. What's the chatter with like the CEOs you've come in contact with on, is there any desire to upgrade the the equipment itself? Or it's just kind of like, we want these features and we don't care how we get them. Yeah, for the most part, it's feature-based. As far as the equipment they're using to get there, there's there have been leaps and bounds in PLCs with uh, built-in web servers and functionality to uh, communicate to the cloud to make decisions faster. But for the most part, at the C level, it's all feature-based, and they just want it however they can get it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what, what would go into, like, if someone decided they wanted a new PLC on a machine... And just to reiterate, I know this is kind of an ops podcast. We're diving a little bit into the manufacturing side and the industrial automation side. A PLC is what controls machines at their lowest level. So PLC basically is a programmable... Holy crap. Here comes that beer. It's a programmable logic controller. And basically it's built to be as bulletproof as humanly possible. And based on that number one criteria, especially in safety PLCs, which run equipment that can literally rip your arms off, explode, blow buildings up, you know, cause some serious, serious problems, you know, how do you see adding all of this functionality into some of these machines that are literally, you know, too important to fail? Uh, The most important thing is letting the PLC actually run the equipment. So... With a lot of the computers and adding some of this side functionality, 
the computer should just be that aside functionality. It communicates to the PLC to let the PLC know when certain things need to be done, but those should not be critical life threatening things. Right. So basically, as far as adding this new functionality and the PLC goes, we need to make sure we split the compute plane that handles all the fun stuff and the actual control plane, which is working with the machines themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so let the PLC run the machine. And for instance, if, if we've got this this monitoring device that's going to reduce scrap and if there's we a, a flaw detected in the material the machine's producing and we want to stop the machine to prevent that scrap, the PLC actually handles stopping the machine and the computer just communicates to it that it's time to stop. And in that case, there's no one's life in de- jeopardy, just material and scrap reduction. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we obviously saw like a robot that ripped someone's arms off in places. A robot killed somebody at a VW factory, things like that. It seems like, you know, the technology is improving everywhere you go. But with that improvement comes more room for error. So I think splitting that up seems to be probably a really, really fucking important thing. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. What kind of robot kind of stuff have you seen? What are some of like the safety things you've seen that just blew your mind? So I, one of the one of the jobs I worked at, we had uh, these palletizing robots that stacked totes onto pallets as they were coming down off of a shipping sorter. And this these were actually open walled, light curtain protected robots. And we saw plenty of times that network errors would actually cause the robot controller to have a memory glitch and forget that it had a mostly full pallet. And when it went to place the next tote, it would just send it right through the pallet and and throw totes and product 20 feet across the floor. Holy shit. (laughs) That sounds terrifying. (laughs) It it, it was crazy. I mean, some, some of these totes had hundreds of items in them and you got... 30 or 40 totes on a pallet and then it just blasts it across the room and not only the mess to clean up but the the safety hazards we had quite a few close calls in some of those situations where someone was walking by but luckily with the light curtains the the robot did stop as soon as the product exited the cell but still flying hazards yeah so what uh what kind of protections are you seeing i know you've got hard cells you've got what were they called light curtains Correct. Yeah, so these had open walls, and these light curtains were just lasers shot across the open wall, and anything that breaks the plane of the laser e-stops the machine, the robot. Okay, so if the robot throws a thing, it just stops it from throwing another thing? Exactly, yeah. So So not ideal, but uh, better than nothing, I guess. Yep, in situations like that, yeah, that was... But this particular setup allowed the operators to work and replace pallets on one side of the cell while the robot was still working on the other side of the cell. So it was a trade-off in performance and efficiency. Yeah, well, that's typically the trade-off, I would imagine. Yeah, that's uh, that's wild. And just to kind of clear that up, uh, Eric has worked for some of the largest companies in the world. We're not going to say which ones, but I will say that when I say largest, I do actually mean largest. You've seen a lot. Did you uh, feel like you usually just kind of worked with 
conveyance systems, stuff like that? Was there a lot of robots? Is it mostly supply chain that you worked with? Uh, yeah, mostly supply chain. Um, for the most part, it was conveyance systems. But there was a significant amount of automated systems, automated label placement, um, sortation devices, and then we did have a decent amount of robots doing different tasks around the, the building. So what kind of, uh, what, what programming is the robotics usually in? Do they ha does it have an abstraction layer? Is there usually like a framework that controls it that makes it easier for people to program those robots? Or do they just basically jump right into C and hope, that, hope for the best? No, so the robots are actually, so um, the typical cell has two pieces. So you still have a PLC that manages the cell itself. So it, it tells the robot when it needs to go pick an item, where it needs to place that item. Um, and then the robot has pre-programmed paths and, and kind of decisions that it, it makes to move, uh, like, how it's going to move once it picks up that item and then goes to set it back down. And then there's also vision systems put on the robot that help it know, help it fine tune where it's going to set something down. So we had um, cameras and uh, ultrasonic sensors that helped it kind of know where it was at uh, with regards to how it was setting a tote down on top of another tote. But the PLC actually controlled the cell and told the robot what to do. Man, that's that's so much. So you got a PLC, you've got robotics, and one small slip, and you're slinging a pallet across a warehouse. Yep, yep. There's a lot of moving parts. <laughs> yeah, I've heard some uh, some other pretty hilarious stories from you while working with you over the last year about people making some very silly mistakes and luckily walking away and or limping away from them but still doing all right it's a wild industry i mean just the the fact that you know regular ops like for instance the the person who completely bricked s3 you know at amazon a couple years ago bricked pretty much a giant chunk of the internet nobody physically got hurt that we know of yep it's it's a different world in a manufacturing environment every everything you do has to be safety focused and safety conscious yeah so a controls engineer that was probably making half of what that engineer made probably has caused more death and destruction than uh than that person made now from a monetary standpoint i'd say uh I'd say the people at Amazon probably still take the cake, but or AWS rather. But it's just unreal, you know, how much training is needed to being an industrial engineer and how unfilled that space is. Yep, we are constantly uh, trying to recruit and bring new people in. It's definitely a, um, a limited pool. Right, right. What are you seeing, you know, as far as newer requirements are you starting to see kind of what we're doing as requirements with jobs you've seen or is they are those people still somewhat isolated are you starting to see like you know again like python and other you know newer languages starting to be required are you starting to see more network security stuff like that kind of a full stack situation or are you just you know is it just can you work a plc please please do it 
No, it, it's definitely shifting a lot. I mean, back in the day, controls was, you know, a lot. You had to be very electrically knowledgeable, um, understanding, you know, the wiring, the relay logic and everything. The physical world. Built in. Yeah. And then that started shifting into the PLCs and understanding ladder logic and then, you know, shifted more into communications protocols and understanding how to communicate with different sensors and things that were no longer analog and or digital. Mm-hmm. Um, and most recently, um, the controls has really shifted into IT. If you don't understand networking and Ethernet and the communications, MQTT messaging, yep, uh, up to different server systems, uh, it's you're it's almost you're almost irrelevant. Like it's it, the networking side of controls is definitely a huge piece of it now, and one of the largest lacking that we saw in most of our controls guys I worked with. Yeah, I've noticed that, you know, in the ops world, in this, you know, general IT, tech ops, DevOps, stuff like that, you know, we pretty much hang around with uh, with Ethernet and just, you know, standard IP addressing, stuff like that. The protocols, TCP, IP, don't really dig in a lot. And with the manufacturing world, I mean, you've got all sorts of protocols. Uh, You've got Ethernet, IP. Can bus, Profi bus. There it is. That, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, there's the data highway. And I've, from what I understand, and again, you know, I deal with this stuff every day, but I'm still the, in the data layer. I, I hang out and manage the databases and all that kind of stuff. I really don't get too far across the edge, honestly. So those really are just focused on being incredibly latency resilient things like that, just to, to make things run smoother and make sure that everything is faster versus TCP IP, which kind of has a little bit of a higher overhead. Yeah, a lot of it is really industrial robustness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the industrial world with VFDs and motors and uh, fluorescent lights all over the place, it's a very noisy environment. There's a lot going on. So having a communications protocol and an actual physical layer on that that is capable of filtering out all of that noise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed whenever we've, we've been purchasing stuff for you know other clients that pretty much everything is still 10 megabit, all the industrial switches, which just blows my mind. Yep, 10, 10 100. You can, see quite a few 100s, but yeah, gigabit switches are pretty limited in the industrial space. A lot of the PLCs don't have gigabit ports until you really get into the high-end, high-speed PLCs. Yeah, I guess you would see those, what, like car manufacturing or something? They're really high, you know, variability type situations or? It really comes down to the machine it's on. It's, It's how much computing and how quickly the machine needs to be making decisions. So if you're looking at like a high speed bottling plant where you're, you're in, putting labels on bottles that are going by 200 bottles a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might even be faster than that. Uh, you need a PLC that's capable of processing and taking the sensor inputs fast enough and then timing out the labeling system where the, uh, you know, running some slow conveyance that's just watching boxes go by and starting and stopping when, you know, jams happen you don't need that type of high speed so you can save some money by buying a right different processor yeah so speaking of bottling you've done a little bit of work with uh keg sensors too right <laughs> yeah i dabbled into yeah. keg yeah. sensor technology yeah i figured you know ops and hops that's practically uh exactly what this is kind of about i know you probably can't speak on everything but 
you know, what did you, uh, I know a lot of people have actually tried to solve this problem and the fact that, you know, you up until recently have been actually also trying to solve the problem and nobody seems to be able to, what were some of those challenges? So we were trying to develop a sensor that would mount on the outside of a keg and uh, monitor how much beer is left in the keg, temperature and, and different atmospheric things, uh, how, how the keg moved and transited and stuff. But most importantly is volume of beer in the keg. And yeah, some of the, some of the challenges we ran into with that were uh, getting, obviously seeing inside of a keg that's not transparent, that's metal. Uh, has a lot of sound resiliency, and uh, we tried a few different technologies and and ways of of getting that done, and we're not completely successful. And those are double IPAs. They are so double IPA. Probably, I think they're rolling they're, about uh, yeah eight percent even. Nice. Yeah, should be fun. The show usually uh, would be on a Thursday or Friday, but we decided just to kind of start this thing early this time around. We'll, uh, we'll see how that bodes for us tomorrow. I've got a lot of Ansible stuff still to go. So that's kind of the fun thing again about this industry is the fact that we've been dabbling in the, the newest stuff and then also in the oldest. So we've kind of got to relive some of our older years, you know. I used to work in managed hosting, which of course now, thanks to AWS, practically doesn't exist anymore. It's out there. Rackspace is still limping along, but for the most part, most of these companies are just consultants for AWS. But uh, it's, you know, it's kind of cool sometimes to spin up a new server that you can actually put your hands on and start really digging in. And then some days when, you know, Ubuntu or CentOS decides to do some stupid update that wasn't managed and everything breaks, it drives you absolutely insane. So that's kind of the uh, daily world. I mean, you know, messing with Nginx versus a Amazon load balancer is just different worlds. I got config files and everything over here with Nginx with an Amazon load balancer. I throw it into uh, Terraform in about 10 lines, and all of a sudden I have literally everything that I could possibly want. So it's certainly different and sometimes a huge pain in the ass, but a lot of times it is kind of neat being able to touch literally everything every day. And that's kind of what I've been doing today. I don't know who listening to us has ever messed with Ansible Tower. Or I'm sorry. Yeah, Ansible Tower, AWX is the upstream version of that. It's open source. That is uh, just a phenomenal product. It's a, the UX is a little wonky, but that's pretty much to be expected for any open source product, I think, geared towards you know the tech community. Basically, we're all pretty good at what we do and they kind of don't prioritize ease of use when it comes to the GUI over just getting shit done. Certainly have noticed that kind of across the board. Eric, where do you find that in, uh, in the industrial world as far as working with old stuff? Let's just talk about Alan Bradley. Just, uh, just the software that you have to deal with that, I mean, I've I've kind of touched on it. I've seen what you've had to deal with, and I just if you just want to kind of explain some of the nightmare that is Alan Bradley software. So even so, 
ahead of time. I am a huge Alan Bradley advocate. Right. I absolutely love their PLCs and all their stuff. The software's pretty decent, but man, version <laughs> control. <laughs> version control is rough. And compatibility. So new new firmware has come out with the PLCs and that that requires a new version of software and that version of software doesn't work with all with the, any PLCs that are older than that they release a new one of these close to every year might even be closer to 9 months and when you install multiple versions on your computer you start running into all kinds of bugs and issues and good luck fixing them you just have to wipe the computer and start over so i've actually moved my deployment so i i have vmware center on my Windows computer, and I create a new Windows 10 VM for every single version of Alan Bradley RS Logics that I install. That goes against everything that we in the ops community stands for stand for nowadays. So basically, you're using you know in a world of containers, you're pretty much relegated to deploying an entire operating system for every version of this software now. Would you say that this versioning might possibly be profit motivated? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, you you get them for free, so it's. I mean, you buy version thirty and you get version thirty one and thirty two, and then when they come out with thirty three, you get that. So it's it's it all runs on the same license. It's just uh, all firmware based from the PLC itself. So does that license have to be updated every year? Do you have to continue no. paying? Oh, wow. Okay, so that is no, different. It, it's, it's a perpetual license. You buy the license one time, and you get the versions and everything. Now, there are support packages you have to buy if you have issues and you need Rockwell support and things like that. Well, of course. Technical support. But, yeah, you buy the license one time, you have it for life. You can go on and download the new versions when new versions come out for new PLCs. You hear that, Oracle? And... uh a million other <laughs> IT providers. I, I will say that although, you know, a lot of the things they, Alan Bradley does kind of pisses me off. They do feel like the Oracle of the industrial world. Just hearing that one license kind of covers that forever is, is pretty impressive because a lot of people in the IT world, a lot of companies, you have to continue a support contract to continue getting upgrades on licenses and some of them will actually charge you retroactively if you need the new version they will charge you for every month you lapsed on your support contract so if you want the new version of something you know three years later and you haven't been paying support they'll charge you back support for all those years which you know of course in the medical field and a lot of other fields can cost just tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars it's unreal yeah that's that is that's nuts um, but yeah, overall, fairly happy with, with Rockwell Automation, but you have to be patient. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll, there'll be times you'll tear your hair out and then times that it's just great. So it's basically like a child. Yeah. Yeah. You just gotta, you know, keep, you keep just, them in line and you gotta nurture it, love it, <laughs> and it'll be good to you most of the time. Feed it. <laughs> so, um, you know, outside of Alan Bradley, where where would you go next? You know, what PLC software, what what PLC would you go after that? Where are the trade-offs, that kind of stuff? Would you, you know, I've heard good things about Siemens, I think it was. 
Yeah, that that would be definitely the next one. I mean, they're the next big dog. Um, and Siemens has nice stuff too. Um, I have not used Siemens as much as Allen Bradley, but they they've got well well made software, nice PLCs. So, what do you think about the you know moving into the more modern stuff? We've got what Opto twenty two, I think it is, and Phoenix Contact has their stuff, which you know Phoenix Contact started in like what 1908 or something i can't remember the exact year just making literal electrical contacts and now they're kicking out plcs with actual processing planes oh man this beer's kicking yeah. in you know they've got yeah, they've, PL, they're actually PLC working next. on containerization in the uh in the plc and i think they've actually you know mentioned that in the future the plc software may be run on just other hardware it may not even look like a plc anymore and of course, Opto 22, they've got just all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Yeah, so the, a lot of the new PLCs I'm really excited about. I mean, a lot of these new systems have Linux running side by side with the uh, parser that's parsing the ladder, ladder logic. Mm -hmm. And you can do some really cool stuff with running Docker containers, running Python code, um, edge computing right at the machine. It's, it, it's very exciting. I can't wait to get my hands on some of it and... And really see what it can right. do. Right. And I mean, as far as we've seen, you know, from what we've read, it looks like they are splitting that machine control plane and the, I'm just going to call it IOT plane or edge plane right now. You know, they're, they're kind of splitting that. So the active side that's actually controlling is completely separate because obviously security concerns are huge. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you start putting machines on the internet. Security is uh, very important. You don't want people hacking into physical equipment. Um, and yeah, for the most part, they are separate. It would be similar to having a separate Linux computer plugged into your PLC over the network. Right. No, that's definitely something uh, we're looking into, but it's it's also just it's just crazy, you know, that these companies are starting to embrace containers. These companies that forever have just fought damn near everything. I mean, if you think about it, like Alan Bradley doesn't even have a great system for when you said source control earlier or version control i was actually thinking of software version control as in sorry the uh the code version control i was actually thinking of scm and i think alan bradley has something but there's just no, no way it's as do. good as gitlab and github and everything else i mean it's not standardized, right? Uh, there's just called Asset Center, oh. and it is a software that you have to install on your computer yeah. um, aside from the actual Allen Bradley software. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it does version control. It, it, it's collaborative, which is pretty cool. So you, I think you have to have a, a centralized server that's storing everything. But anytime anybody makes a change to any PLC, it records who made that change, what change was made, and it backs up and saves the software on that central server. But it's it's not Get, GitLab-esque. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just time to see these companies embrace the fact that this stuff is here to stay. There's there's nothing they can do about it. You know, Git is, is it. Like, that's what everybody uses. Like, find a way to get involved with that. Containers that's that's here to stay you know obviously you've got serverless coming but even serverless runs essentially in containers it's not like that's this huge difference so the fact that you know some of these companies are trying to maintain their own proprietary methods seems like it's going to end up shooting them in the foot eventually uh, quite possibly 
Um, I, I think more and more of them will end up getting on, getting on board. They're just yeah. slow movers. Yeah, seeing more companies, I think, you know, like being able – actually, you know, it's maybe something that GitHub, GitLab, et cetera, uh, maybe they need to get involved with. For instance, GitHub will display, you know, Jupyter Notebooks, you know, Python code as a markdown document as it's supposed to be done natively. Maybe they should be able to pull in industrial documents – ladder logic documents, things like that, and display those natively. You know, maybe even have an editor for them, something like that. Yeah, that would be awesome. Anyway, I'm about to edit out this section because I think we just got our new startup. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah, we just got to... Uh, man, we work on, we kick out uh, SEM that really works for a lot of these. I think, uh, I think that could be pretty cool. Of course, Alan Bradley's protocol is always going to prevent it. Yeah, that's the biggest <laughs> thing is a lot of these uh, ladder logics a compiled language. Mm -hmm. so you write it, you compile it, you download it to the controller. Right. But I mean, you know, still it's fairly standardized, isn't it? Before it's compiled, the ladder diagrams themselves are. Very yeah, that's a, that's all I mean. I mean, if we could get ladder diagrams into uh, into SEM like Git or GitHub, could be a pretty yeah. interesting thing, especially if you can, you know transcode them to multiple languages or you know protocols for different plcs and stuff that would be pretty interesting yeah it would so there's the new startup idea right there anyway how's that apa treating you man very good very good nice i'm um, just about just about finished with it <laughs> nice yeah we're actually uh gonna roll up on 45 minutes here soon we've uh probably squeeze in another few topics just to kind of branch it over since I know we've got a uh, shitload of stuff to edit that nobody in public's ever going to hear again. So sorry, That's everybody. Good. You're missing out on all the juicy bits. Maybe we'll release the B-sides and outtakes eventually. <laughs> yes. Yes, that one. Eric's got his nod. Eric's got his nod. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I mean, we've covered a lot of lot of stuff here we've drank some beers we've had a pretty good time um to tell you the truth for our first episode i'm kind of incredibly impressed with how well we conducted ourselves yeah not bad not bad yeah it, it felt pretty natural i think we've we've set a goal to do worse next time nice <laughs> yeah let's get a little overconfident drink a little extra next time All right I think that'll be All great right, i'll bring an extra uh, i've got a i've got a special beer for the next one same and, and it has a special ABV, so <laughs> really, really looking forward to that one. Yeah, the the next beer I've got actually, uh, the ABV is pretty close to the same, but I will say, Beer Advocate, you know, however you, much weight you want to put on them, has actually given it a hundred. So this one here has a ninety-five, which I will say this is the Ninja versus Unicorn is absolutely one of my favorite beers that I've had. And that's why I decided to bring it on this show. I'm after living in Denver for over a year and tasting all their different types of beers and IPAs and Imperials and doubles and triples and you name it. This Ninja versus Unicorn double IPA is definitely one of my favorite across the country. Very happy with it. How do you feel about yours? Is it living up to its, you know, slightly above mediocre? Is it great? Is it Decent? Um, no, the APA is pretty good. It's a good light beer. It's something I would definitely drink on a hot summer <laughs> You just day. called an APA a light beer. 
I guess that shows where we're uh, where we're at in life. <laughs> I mean, it has a light, crisp taste. <laughs> it's six point two five. It's definitely not light, but yeah, <laughs> it is a it is a summer day beer. Let me say so. That. Closer it's... to a session than anything, but it is an APA. So it's. Well, I mean, again, American APA. You know, American. You know, pale ale. American APA. I keep saying it's like a ATM machine. Uh, the American point. APA is actually a little bit lighter anyway than an IPA will be. Uh, a six point two five percent is is definitely above a session, but yeah, it's a summer day beer. It's good. Yeah, I'll have to bring out some uh, Goose Island solos one day. You know, we can all hang out for three uh, percent beers, and we'll roll to uh, we'll go. We'll take about a seven hour show for me to catch a buzz and see what happens. Yeah. If that, probably put you to sleep first. Yeah, most likely. Eric, man, great, great, great show. Hopefully you can join on a few more. And yeah, uh, yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah, I think we just crossed our 40, we crossed our 46 minutes or whatever. We'll, the viewers will probably see about 27 minutes of it after I edit everything. Perfect. Yep, absolutely. So anyway, man, thanks a lot and cheers. Thanks for joining the Ops and Hops podcast. All right, thanks, man.